If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 742. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but right now, Black Friday deal's almost over. So use that coupon code, Black Friday 2022, get 30% off all my classes at McClanahan Academy, and you're going to want them if you like this podcast. I guarantee it. There's over 20 for purchase. You keep this podcast free of charge by doing that. But you can also subscribe at anchor.fm. You can become a, a member there. You can go to Brian McClanahan. Uh, dot com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. If you're watching on YouTube, click on a little heart on the video, the little super thanks button. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. A great way to get that Brian McClanahan show fan in your life some of my gear. You can do that or purchase one of my books. I've got a lot of those too. Always make great gifts. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review if you're at Apple Podcasts. Give it a text review. If you're on YouTube, give it a comment, like the video. Let it go as far as you can through so that you can help bump the algorithm. And always send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. So we've come out of the Thanksgiving break. Uh, We had a great episode yesterday on Ron DeSantis and why I think he's a better governor than president or would be a better governor than president. If National Review wants him, That can be a troubling sign. But today I'm going to talk about a very interesting op-ed that was in the New York Times by Jamel Bowie. Now, I've talked about Bowie a lot on this show. And and, um, look, some of the things that Bowie says are interesting. And it always gives me great podcast fodder. But today, uh, this particular article shocked me. And it shocked me for a variety of reasons. The most important is because essentially what Jamel Bowie is now doing is using the exact same arguments conservatives made against the Supreme Court for the last, say, 50 years. The left has completely unraveled. For years, they understood the court was their way of getting their agenda, and they were always behind it. If they could control the court, they could control the power of the court, they can control the federal court system, they won. And what's happened is rather interesting. This is uh, one of the things you can say positive about Mitch McConnell. There's not a whole lot. But Mitch McConnell understood that conservatives could win long term if they could just control the court. And this is why I've said, I even said it yesterday, if somehow you get a, a, a defector from the Democrats, I don't care who it is. Joe Manchin is the one that's often talked about. But the Republicans take a 51-49 advantage in the Senate. And if Mitch McConnell really wanted to play hardball, and he's very good at this part of it, on the judges, Joe Biden could have a situation where he never gets another appointment. The Republicans could do it. They could block everything. They could shut the entire federal court system down. 
And that would be an absolutely amazing development because what's happened, of course, in the last half decade, and even during the Obama administration, you have the, what they call the nuclear option, the Senate able to avoid the filibuster, particularly with Supreme Court nominations or with federal court nominations. You've had a process by which the Senate really has taken this role of advice and consent seriously. If they don't consent, then there is no appointment power for the presidency. You see, the president is powerless without the Senate. The Senate, the dirty little secret in the Constitution, the Senate was designed to be the check on everything. And who did the, who did the senators originally represent? Well, of course, the states. And so the states had a check on everything. And in fact, it was argued during the ratification debates that if the, if the states wanted to hinder the federal government, they wanted to make it to where it couldn't operate, they would just withhold their senators. And that would make it to where the general government ceases to operate until, the, until it concedes to the wishes of the states. And this was actually a big deal in uh, the 1860s because did the Senate actually have a quorum? I mean, if, if Lincoln's position is that the, the states are in rebellion and that uh, we have to fight to bring them back in the Union, and so they're not really out of the Union, well, then you don't really have a quorum to do business because so many states have left and withdrawn their senators. So what did the Congress do? It worked around it by saying, well, we, don't, we, can, we can work a quorum without that. They just passed some rules changes to make sure that would happen with the people in attendance. So you see, in theory, everything that the Republicans did during the 1860s, during the war, was completely unconstitutional because there was no quorum. So they couldn't really pass any legislation if the states were not out of the Union. Now, if they were out of the Union, then it would all be fine. So you either have to accept secession or you have to reject secession with the way that the system operated. If you accept secession, then uh, then the way the, the Congress operated during the war would be fine. If you reject it, then it wouldn't. And even the rule changes wouldn't matter. So there's that whole argument, right? These are all you know, in the weeds kind of arguments, but they're important. So for all the years that the Republicans, or the conservatives, I should say, in America, but generally the Republicans in the last 50 years or so, have argued against the power of the court, the left has now adopted every single one of those arguments. And this particular piece, as I said, was shocking because Jamel Bowie actually is right about what the opponents of the Constitution feared would happen with the federal court system. Not just the Supreme Court, but a federal court system that could run roughshod over the states. They thought the state courts would be absolutely irrelevant. They thought the federal courts would take over, that you had all these federal judges then that would simply do the bidding of the center. In essence, in essence it was an argument against centralized power. And Bowie is now making that case. And if you make that case, if you now see, Bowie would believe in centralized power. He just wants term limits on Supreme Court judges and maybe federal court judges because he doesn't really want to go all the way. But you have to go all the way. If you start tearing down the federal court, then what becomes more important? Well, the state courts. And real federalism becomes an issue. And if real federalism is there and the state courts handle all these issues, then you would have a lot of the woke social justice agenda return back to the states, and the states would deal with it the way it's supposed to be dealt with. You would have Alabama do what Alabama wants to do, and you would have uh, Massachusetts do what Massachusetts wants to do, and you would have California do what California wants to do in regard to all of these social issues which are really driving all of the angst in America. We're not battling over taxes 
or trade policy. But these are the things that the general government should be talking about and really nothing else. We should have foreign policy front and center in America. We should know about corruption and foreign policy. We should know about these things. These are the things that should occupy the business of Congress, not deciding what, uh, what some school board in Texas uses to teach critical race theory or not, or what, uh, what the state of Massachusetts does with its marriage laws. These are not under the purview of the federal government. They never have been. That's, that's the dirty little secret. So I want to go over this little Jamel Bowie piece because, I mean, again, I was shocked by it, completely shocked that Jamel Bowie would actually argue these things. Okay, so the title of this is The Case of Supreme Court Term Limits Just Got a Lot Better. Interestingly enough, now you could, conservatives are going to, are going to, oh, oh, Jamel Bowie wants it, so I don't want it anymore. This is where all this stuff is just fascinating. There's no one that's really principled. I bet you if Jamel Bowie was, was writing this piece, say, 30 years ago, he would say the case for Supreme Court term limits just got a lot weaker, right? Because if you just take out the fact that this is Samuel Alito he's attacking and make it uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, just say, you know, 1990s. This is 1995 or 1996. And it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg that does the leaking. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg that's being influenced. Because it's not just people on the right that are influenced by money. It's people on the left who on the court. If he was just saying we have this politicization of the court, or if this was the Warren court, would he even be arguing this? No. He would say we need these people on the bench for life because they're doing the right things with federal law. But now that it's conservatives turning this and actually taking a real federalist position, which is that, you know, for example, the Dobbs decision simply returning the issue back to the states, which is where it belongs. Well, now this becomes highly problematic. We can't have this. So Bowie says, the most striking detail in the recent investigation by the New York Times into another potential Supreme Court breach it's not the evidence that Justice Samuel Alito or his wife may have leaked information to conservative friends in 2014 about the outcome of Burwell v. Hobby Lobby stores, which extended religious liberty to the actions of family-owned corporations. No. The most striking detail is the extent to which a number of Republican justices, Alito included, appear to have been the targets of a sophisticated and well-funded influence operation designed to notch as many legal and constitutional victories for moneyed and conservative interests as the justices are willing to give. Now, look, one of the arguments against the court, and he's going to bring this up later in the piece, but even you go back to the Jeffersonian period, right? You go back to the early 19th century. One of the arguments against the court was that it was too influenced by outside political forces. We know, for example, in McCulloch v. Maryland in 1819, John Marshall himself probably leaked that it was going to be a big decision with far-reaching implications. And this is why the court was packed. We know that Marshall met with Daniel Webster essentially beforehand and said, this is how you're going to argue the case. So we know there's influence. Now, the muddied influence for justices at that point wasn't as prominent as it, as it is today. There's no doubt about this. This is why David Hume and his ideal republic wanted it so spread out that you couldn't have any centralization, concentration of money or power in one place. And Bowie makes a very good argument. This is a problem for corruption in Washington, D.C. In fact, what Bowie is doing here, unbeknowing to him probably, is that he's undermining the entire progressive agenda. 
because what they really want is centralization of power in Washington, D.C. so they can control it. He's making a very convincing case that we need to downgrade the power of the federal judicial branch. Hallelujah! He finally has seen the light, but he's not seeing it in the way that you think you wanted to see it because if his guys, if his team were in charge, well, then it would be okay. See, what the left is banking on, if you get term limits now, they, on, they think, they believe that they will never lose the presidency again and that they will always control, at least, or have the ability to control what ideological disposition is on the federal court system. It's on the bench. Right now, you've got young judges there who aren't going anywhere anytime soon. The oldest, Alito is getting, he's, he's getting up there in age, so is Clarence Thomas, so at some point they got to go. But their people on the bench right now are younger compared to Alito and Thomas. And so there, if you could just rotate these people out. You could get Gorsuch out of there. You, Kavanaugh out of there. You could get these people out of there. If you've got, you've got President Brandon in power, well, then, of course, you can get somebody else on there. But, of course, it works against them, too, because then Justice Jackson wouldn't be there for very long. Neither would Kagan. Neither would Sotomayor. Sotomayor is, I mean, there was a recent episode, absolutely hilarious, where she didn't understand what de jure and de facto meant. Now, this is law school 101. She didn't know what it meant. That's um, not, not surprising. Uh, it's not surprising at all uh, for a variety of reasons. But she didn't really know what it meant. So Bowie continues, My colleagues in the newsroom, Jody Cantor and Joe Becker, describe a kind of revolving door where wealthy donors to conservative causes invite justices to meals, vacation homes, and private clubs where they contribute money to the Supreme Court Historical Society for the purpose of meeting with and influencing the justices and where the former head of one such influence operation, Faith in Action, went as far as to purchase a building across the street from the court so he could cultivate the people who work there. Now, Leftists do the exact same thing. You see, the New York Times is going to go after conservative groups. But leftist legal groups do the exact same thing. Leftist special interest groups do the exact same thing. I mean, all you have to do is walk into a store where they sell books. And the cult of personality around Ruth Bader Ginsburg is striking. It's all over the place. Leftists did this stuff too, and to think that leftists would not be persuaded to go after and do the things they want them to do is just absolutely ridiculous. But you see, it's just conservative bad guys right now. You got the boogeyman out there. So we got to take down the power of the court because right now it's working against what Jamil Bowie wants. I agree with him. The court is troubling. The federal court system is a disaster. The federal court system doesn't need to be the way that it is. The state should be handling most of these issues, and it should never go to the federal court. I actually think that Virginia was right in Cohen's v. Virginia and trying to block the, the Supreme Court from even hearing the case because it wasn't really a federal case at all. They were just simply saying you can't appeal to a federal court on this. They were right to do it. The Richmond Junto in all those years in the early 19th century was right. Essentially what Jamel Bowie is arguing here is that the Richmond Junto was right. He wouldn't want to say that, but that's what he's saying. 
Alito denies the allegation that he divulged any information on the court's proceedings, telling the Times that the claim that friends of his were, quote, told to the outcome of the decision in the Hobby Lobby case or the authorship of the opinion of the court by me or by my wife is completely false. Alito also denied the accusation to the Washington, to the Washington Post in similar terms. But I want to shift gears for a moment in any case. So he says, look, Alito's a problem. we got to bash Samuel Alito because he's this real conservative problem. But I want to switch gears. He wants to shift gears and start talking about the anti-federalists. Again, this is absolutely amazing to me. Jamel Bowie has rediscovered, or I should say discovered because he probably didn't know, discovered the anti-federalists, discovered the arguments made against the Constitution. In fact, he argues... With a Brutus essay. Amazing. He uses a Brutus essay to defend his position. Uh, this is why I was shocked. I got to the end. And said, oh my gosh, he decided Brutus. What leftist, what progressive do you think would have done that in the 21st century? You see, in some ways, even though Bowie doesn't know it, the decentralists are winning. Donald Trump and the Supreme Court are doing more to undermine centralization of power than the left could ever do to the right. Because when the left, see, the left does control the media, and they, I mean, they control the Washington Post, they control the New York Times. If they get on board with this stuff, well, then we could see some real work here to try to decentralize. Unfortunately, the, the conservatives will dig, dig the trenches. And start saying, no, 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 we need term limits. We don't need term limits for the Supreme Court. We got our guys on the bench right now. This is what we need to do. This is, this is Mitch McConnell playing the game. He's gaming the system, and the left has lost, at least for right now. They've lost this battle. I don't think they've lost the war, but they've lost this battle, and they don't know what to do about it. They really don't. If the Republicans simply had a, a simple majority on the Senate, they could they could just completely destroy the Democrats' legislative agenda. You know, where the Democrats seem to be focusing their attention now at the state level, it's where everyone needs to focus their attention. <laughs> Not the center. All of this needs to be exposed. All the corruption. Look, the Supreme Court has always been corrupt. It's always been a disaster. The federal court system has always been corrupt. It's always been a disaster. Even decisions that the left loves, if you really peel back all the layers like an onion, you'll find it really stinks because they weren't really based on the Constitution. They're based on political whims. That's all it is. This is what conservatives have been saying for decades. Now, this is what the left is saying. When the two things start saying the same thing, the Supreme Court is basing its opinions on political ideology. I mean, that's a glorious thing. I said, my roommate nine graduate school, you sit around and joke about this. That the best thing that could ever happen to the presidency is someone like Donald Trump. He should have just gilded the White House. He should have come in and just completely made a mockery of it. Because that's really what needs to happen. In some ways, Joe Biden is doing this exact same thing. We had a guy in Donald Trump who people thought was a joke. And then we have Joe Biden who can't who's not really coherent most of the time. It shows the presidency really is not that important. But the institution itself, you see, you got the big bureaucracy there, and it's it's working. This is what the National Review piece, wasn't really National Review, it was Washington Post, but essentially National Review, 
Garrity was saying yesterday. We need a man back in charge. We need a guy the buck stops here. This is what everybody on the right, all the neoconservatives, all the Straussians wants. What the, the left doesn't really need it because they have the bureaucracy. But again, it's all the hero worship from the presidency. We don't need that. So he's going to shift gears. He says, the framers of the Constitution wanted an independent judiciary, strong enough to resist corruption as well as the influence of public opinion. As such, federal judges enjoy tenure during good behavior. Barring impeachment, they cannot be removed. Now, this is where, again, 1804 really is an important year. Um, and uh, look, the, the fact that Samuel Chase wasn't removed from the bench for bad behavior ruined the courts. If the Republicans had had the, had the guts to do it, and Samuel Chase, if you go back and look at that case, is impeachment. He was impeached, and he was brought to trial, but he was not convicted. And he was not convicted because they had a very narrow definition of high crimes and misdemeanors and what good behavior meant. Making purely partisan decisions from the bench is not good behavior. And that's exactly what Samuel Chase was doing. So because John Marshall knew it, he knew he could never be impeached. He could act with impunity. He could go out and make all the partisan decisions he wanted from the bench. Didn't matter. And in fact, I'm going to talk about John Marshall again this week with a piece on monuments. So uh, I'll bring him back up again. But it didn't matter what... You couldn't, you couldn't be removed. You could do almost anything you wanted on the bench. So Bowie says, what, what if lifetime tenure rather than leading justices away from temptation makes it easier to tempt them? In an era in which the Supreme Court is as powerful as it ever been, and which, not coincidentally, the wealthiest Americans have an almost unbreakable grip on our politics, what if lifetime tenure rather than raising the barriers to corruption makes it easier to influence the court by giving interested parties the time and space to operate? In an era in which the Supreme Court is as powerful as it's ever been. Well, whose fault is that? Well, of course, the left. You see, they're just upset. They're crying now because what they created is now being used against them. And now they want to try to game the system again and take it back. Well, the Supreme Court's always been a problem. We shouldn't have ever had it get this powerful to begin with, nor the federal court system, any of that. Well, how did it all get that way? From social issues. You look at all these issues that the left has a problem with. They're social issues. The Supreme Court is just rolling back all the bad decisions, at least, well, not all, there's a lot of them still out there. They're rolling back some bad decisions from previous courts and saying, yeah, this is not something we're going to do. We're going to return this back to the states. Of course, they've also put out the kind of the, the word on the street that they're not going to really do much about uh, marriage, for example. They're not going to invalidate if the Congress would has passed a new marriage bill that essentially codifies um, a federal definition of marriage. They're not going to do that. They're not going to go after that. Because the worry was, of course, that this was all done through a court decision and now uh, the, the Congress is going to get involved. See, the Congress really doesn't have any power here to begin with. And the court could have rolled that back and said this goes back to the states where it belongs. You see, this is about power and about centralization of power. And I'm not so certain the conservatives, quote-unquote, on the bench are that interested in rolling this stuff back. This is why there was a lot of 
heat on Clarence Thomas for writing his concurring opinion in Dobbs. Look at all these things we should get rid of, too. <gasps> that was a shocker. You see, the majority opinion didn't go that way. Thomas was acting on his own. I've talked about that on this podcast. And beyond the question of undue influence, what if lifetime tenure works too well to sever the court from the public, rendering it both unaccountable and dangerous to the popular foundations of American government? Oh, what if it's that anti-democratic? But in fact, he brings up it was designed this way. Lifetime tenure for federal judges was a real innovation in American government. Most states were much less keen to give judges near-total independence from the public at large. In some states, judges were appointed to fixed terms. and others, they were on annual contracts to be renewed at the discretion of the legislature. And still other states gave their legislatures the power to remove judges from the bench for any reason. Much of this flowed from the conventional wisdom among Anglo-Americans in the earliest years of the Republic that all public officials should be as responsive to the people as was possible. This is Bowie. He can't get he can't he can't get out of his own way when it comes to race. He could have just said much of this flow from the conventional wisdom that all, in the early republic. I mean, he has to throw in a racial comment because that's what Bowie lives in. He lives in a world where race is everything. The American Revolution had convinced many ordinary citizens. Why didn't you say many ordinary Anglo-American citizens? I mean, why just citizens? The historian Terry Booten notes in an essay for the volume Revolutionary Founders, Rebels, Radicals, and Reformers in the Making of the Nation that they had a right to monitor government to shape policy and to regulate government if they believed their leaders were not responding to the popular will. In terms of institutions and the structure of political representation, this meant short terms of office. Delegates to the Confederation Congress served for one year. Binding instructions for lawmakers so that they could not act too independently from, of their communities and mandatory rotation or term limits. He goes back to the Confederation here. This is right. The Confederation was, I mean, they had to follow the rules. And even in the Senate, even after the U.S. Constitution is ratified, there were rules given out by legislatures. We want you to vote this way. And they would often try to hold these senators accountable. Mandatory rotation was especially critical. Now, delegates to the Continental Confederation, to the Confederation Congress, by the way, were selected by the legislatures. Elections, especially representatives and counselors, should be annual. They're not being in the whole cir circle of the sciences a maxim more infallible than this, where annual elections end, this, their slavery begins, John Adams wrote in 1776, as British North America erupted into open conflict. These great men in this respect should be once a year, like bubbles on the sea of matter born. They rise, they break, and to that sea return. Now, why is it we had... Uh, now, he's talking about representatives now. Uh, elections, representatives. We get we don't have annual elections at the federal level. In Massachusetts, one of them. But it was argued they didn't need them because this government would be so limited in its powers. Its powers were so general that having a two-year term was fine because they didn't have the authority over marriage. They didn't have the authority over education. They didn't have the authority over local police. That's why we didn't need one-year rotation of office. And they all bought it. Of course, we know this is what the general government does all the time, which is not in its purview. But it's not constitutional, but this is what they do. 
Most state constitutions of the era made some provision for mandatory rotation. The Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, for example, deemed it essential to preventing an inconvenient aristocracy of entrenched officials. The Maryland Declaration of Rights, written that same year, required mandatory rotation of the executive, stating that a long continuance in the first executive departments of power or trust is dangerous to liberty. A rotation, therefore, on those departments is one of the best securities of permanent freedom. And under the Articles of Confederation, no person can serve as a delegate to Congress for more than three years in any, six, in any term of six years. Of course, he's talking about two different things here. He's comparing apples and oranges. This is about representatives in government. And basically what he's saying now is that Supreme Court justices are representatives in government. They're liable to public opinion. They're, they're being influenced. So they should be treated as such. They're just partisan hacks on the court, which is people have been saying about the court for years. Despite this consensus, so strong that even the more arist aristocratically inclined Alexander Hamilton, excuse me, endorsed it in a 1782 Congressional Committee report, there's no provision for anything like mandatory rotation in the federal constitution. What happened? Some of it was practical. James Madison had also endorsed mandatory rotation in a seven, that 1782 report. But between then and 1787, he had a change of heart on the question as a result of instability in the fragile Confederation government. According to the legal scholar Michael J. Klarman, Madison was worried that mandatory rotation was producing, quote, a change in the federal councils not favorable to those Catholic arrangements on which the harmony and stability of the Union must greatly depend. Again, what's interesting about this, he's still talking about legislatures. Not courts, but legislatures. So Bowie is he's mixing two issues together. And uh, that is uh, one of the problems of Jamel Bowie. It's like he can't really figure this out. Apples and oranges here. Madison also observed that experience constantly teaches that new members of the public body do not feel the necessary respect or responsibility for the acts of their predecessors, and that a change of members and of circumstances often proves fatal to consistency and stability of public measures. Again, talking about legislatures, not courts. Some of it was ideological. The Constitution was written to restrain democratic energy and popular unrest in the American Republic. I should say American Federal Republic, but this is actually true. The Constitution is, by design, anti-democratic. The point was to put substantial distance between federal officers and elected officials and the people they were supposed to serve. But why? He doesn't really answer the question here. It's anti-democratic. And the Constitution, the powers of the general government were so limited that you really didn't need to have that kind of constant contact between the general population and the Congress. And some of it among those delegates who backed rotation in theory was probably a miscalculation. Mandatory rotation was still the norm in most states. The Philadelphia delegates might have assumed that this would also be the norm of the new national government, even without explicit mention of the Constitution. They were wrong. Again, he's speculating here. Uh, the opponents of the Constitution did talk about the federal court. And if you take my American Constitutions class, I talk about this. If you take my Federalist, uh, my originalist papers, I should say, my originalist papers classes at McClanahan Academy, I talk about this. There were accusations made that the court was going to be abusive. But it was... Not many people focused on the tenure of offices. In fact, it was thought that the tenure of offices was important, again, to ensure that these people would not be prone to the 
political whims of the day. It was anti-democratic. The United States has mostly moved away from the expectation of mandatory rotation with many lawmakers and judges serving law term, long terms in office. So he, he's getting, well, mandatory, yeah, law, lawmakers and judges, two different things. There's much to be said for the stability and continuity. And in the modern era, the expertise and skill that comes with serving in office or on the bench for long periods of time. And yet, the revolutionary generation had a point worth considering. Long tenure, and in the case of judges, permanent tenure, can go beyond independence to, break, to breathe a kind of arrogance and contempt for the public. Set aside the issue of Supreme Court leaks, and we see this with Justice Alito himself, who has repeatedly gone to public forums to chastise, even mock his liberal critics, as if he owes nothing to them or the people they represent. Well, he really doesn't. doesn't owe anything to them. If he thinks their legal theories are incorrect, which is what he's doing, well then, he's allowed to do that. I mean, the left does the exact same thing. <laughs> What's the difference? But the difference is, of course, Bowie doesn't like it when the conservatives do it, but he's fine with it when the left does it. That's the difference. Again, Bowie's not consistent. He's just whining at this point. Most Americans today support Supreme Court term limits. The reasons vary, but one of the more popular ones is that term limits can help lower the temptation of confirmation battles and reduce the nearly existential stakes of any given appointment. You know what else could do that? Federalism. <laughs> if the court did not go beyond its powers and give the general government too much centralized power, well, then these issues wouldn't be a problem anyways. It's not the court that's a problem. It's the interpretation of the powers of the central government, that's the problem. The central government doesn't have these powers. But looking back to early America, I think there's a better reason to want to pull the judiciary and the Supreme Court a little closer to the people. As the anti-federalist Brutus observed in the midst of the battle to ratify the Constitution, an independent judiciary of this strength, power, and lack of accountability is altogether unprecedented in a free country. This is where I was shocked. This is Bowie's primary reason for wanting to downgrade the power of the court. Amen, Bowie, right? I mean, this, hey, have you seen the light? Probably not, but, I mean, this is what he's saying. There's a better reason to want because it's abusive. The court has too much power. I agree. It should, it should declare all of its stupid decisions that were not based on the Constitution unconstitutional, and then it should fold up shop and let all this stuff go back to the states where it belongs. This power in the judicial, Brutus warned, will enable them to mold the government into almost any shape they please. That's fascinating that he put that quote in there. It's fascinating because that's exactly what the court has done for the left since the 1950s. Really since the 1940s. Got the Wicker case. But, I mean, this is what they've been doing. Or you could say it's what John Marshall did before the war. This is what the court does to almost any shape they please. It's almost as if Jamel Bowie had an epiphany. I don't think he really did. I think this is all about politics for Bowie. He doesn't like to be on the losing side. But regardless, reading more Brutus and the critiques of centralized power would help Americans along in their love affair with the central authority and the problems of too much power in Washington, D.C., whether it's on the left or the right, which is what I've been saying on this show 
for over half a decade. Now, think locally, act locally, and go to it. The state courts should have much more power in America than the federal courts. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>